Okay, so that's it. We're ready to go. So we have in the house today, Laura Hamill, Dr. Laura Hamill. And today you get two doctors for the price of one. So this is awesome. This is gonna be a good show. And maybe, hey, we could just jump in, Laura. You can tell about who you are, what you do. And you know the whole happy at work ethos is exactly, I think, what you're about. Positivity yeah. in the workforce, making people happier, making the workplace a better place. So maybe you could talk about what you've been yeah. doing and what's going on. Yeah, for sure. So I, um, yeah, my background is I am an organizational psychologist. And so psychology applied to work. And I really, most of my career have focused on topics that are related to creating psychologically healthy, great, great places to work, places where we all want to be. Um, and I've had like the real cool privilege of doing that in a lot of different ways, right? I've worked inside organizations. I've worked in a consulting capacity. I've taught some classes. So I've got to do that in a lot of different ways. But I guess if I had to sort of summarize what, what I do is focusing on um, psychologically healthy workplaces, how I do it is through research and science within an organization. So thinking about how you can be more rigorous, and have more um, kind of scientific methods within an organization to do that. Now, Michael, that sounds familiar, right? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's right. She's a woman after your own heart. Laura, <laughs> it's great to have you on the show. During COVID, I I went to Penn to get a master's degree in positive psychology. So while most people were like lamenting COVID, I was like learning all about well-being and flourishing and. Gosh. I went to UPenn to the the big conference that right the year before COVID. I went and I met a lot of map people um, mm -hmm. and I was at the big conference and oh my gosh, the, it, it's right up my alley. I mean, I fell in love with positive psychology many, many years ago um, when I helped start, I helped start a company called Limey. It's a software company that focuses on well-being and employee engagement. And um, when I was helping to start the company it was just a, just a general kind of big idea Mm -hmm. I started reading a ton of the positive psychology literature and I absolutely fell in love with it. And I had like all these huge aha moments, not only for the business we were trying to create, but also for me personally, you know, for my own life and what's important in my life. And I, I couldn't get more excited about something. So, positive I, psychology. so I have a question for you that I don't know if there's an answer yet for it, which is why I like to ask these kinds of questions. So now that we have the diversity, equity, inclusion, and the whole, let's, let's bring in the rainbow in different cultures. One of the things that we had looked at uh, at Penn with positive psychology is that a lot of the research has been done on Western cultures and Western mm. organizations. And um, I'm curious if you feel that some of the positive psychology things, things that make the workplace better in a Western workplace need adaptation to a more global team environment or perhaps to other offices like the Shanghai office needs to have a little bit of a twist versus the New York office. And I'm curious if there's a, a, a shift that you think needs to happen. We actually did a research study on this um, within at um, Limeade. So I headed up when I was there uh, full-time as an employee, now I'm an advisor for them, but when I was there full-time as an employee, I headed up this group called Limeade Institute and we did research studies on lots of different topics. And what we were studying in that particular um, study was the extent to which, which, what kinds of things are kind of core to the human experience mm -hmm. and what things are very specific to national and geographical cultures. And we absolutely found that yes, there are things that everybody kind of shares 
Um, and there are things that are very unique. So just like anything, right, there's this idea that you need to localize. You need to be really thoughtful about the, the customs and the cultures and the norms. But there's also a, human, a shared human experience. And some of the things that we actually found that I thought was interesting that were core, that were, core were some of the work well-being types of topics, right? Being kind of treated with respect, um, feeling like you have some purpose at work. Um, some of those kinds of ideas were, were shared um, everywhere we looked, but there, but there is some, you know, really important things to be thinking about that are specific to where, <laughs> where people live, right? Yeah, for, I, I, did, I haven't done research on it. I've done this anecdotal thing where I, I've, I've shared with people, and uh, I heard that in some Asian cultures, especially in Japan, to do the three good things exercise, three good things that happened the last day, uh, isn't super popular possibly because you could come across as bragging. Yeah. And I thought yeah. that that was interesting. And I spoke to a student of mine yesterday because we just got finished with a holiday. And, and I, I, I said, how was your holiday? What did you do? Da, da, da. And I was trying to do the, I see you and you matter. And I'm curious about your experience. Yeah. And I think he took me as being nosy. And I thought, <laughs> oh, I, I wonder if that bombed too. <laughs> Completely. There's so much for us to learn around these kinds of topics, right? And the emotional intelligence that's really required. And, you know, it's just not a blanket, throw these ideas out there and like the, everything's going to work if we just do these exercises or if we just, you know, all think in the same way. There's a lot about emotional intelligence, right? And really understanding where people are coming from and what they need and what they're experiencing, what they bring to the table. Um, and this is, I'm kind of probably jumping into something that uh, is you know, really detailed, but I think there's so much for us to understand around people's childhoods, people, where people come from, and how that impacts work. And that's one of the things that I have gotten really interested in. It's a research study that I'm doing right now with some other people is sort of this intersection of clinical psychology and organizational psychology. Because I think we're at this really interesting place right now where organizations are open to talking about mental health in new ways than they ever have before. And I think it's amazing that most organizations talk about mental health in terms of, um, we support, you know, we support this, we want you to go see a therapist. So go out there and get somebody else to fix this <laughs> sort of the attitude, right? And not a lot of desire to say, gosh, what is it that we're doing to contribute to our employees' mental health struggles? And so the study that I'm working on, one part of the study is interviewing therapists who work with employees and saying, okay, what are you hearing from your clients around the biggest causes of stress? and the biggest kind of issues that come from organizations. Wouldn't it be amazing if we actually worked on some of those things? And so that's, that's just part of the study. Another part of the study is actually talking to employees on, on the same kinds of topics and getting their perspectives, a very large sample of employees, but really trying to understand this intersection of how do we create great places to work and how do we think about mental health and mental health at work, <laughs> not just, you know, as an outcome of work. So, Catherine, I think, yeah. 
Yeah. So Laura, hi, it's, it's so great to have you on, um, on the podcast. So the question I had though, somewhat related to that is, um, is looking at generations. So I'm really interested in looking at different generations within the uh, workplace. And um, part of my doctoral research was actually looking at healthcare professionals and primarily nursing and looking at older generations and how they were interacting with younger generations of nurses and kind of the discord that happens because of the difference in the way they are trained and the expectations that older generations have for what younger generations must go through, right? Like, as they say, nurses eat their young. So um, I'm just really curious from what you see working with organizations, um, are, how are you seeing older generations of executives who are, are they embracing these younger generations who have more boundaries, who seek, you know, uh, work-life balance, who, who have higher expectations of what the workplace can provide for them, or do you see a little bit of resistance from older generations? I know I'm a Gen Xer, and, you know, as, as liberal and open-minded as I am, I sometimes find myself getting a little frustrated with, you know, sometimes we just have to get the, the job done. So what are, yeah. what are your thoughts and what do you see around, around the kind of generational differences? Yeah. Um, so, it's fascinating because I work with a lot of leaders who in general tend to be a bit older, right? And they're the ones who are making a lot of decisions about what the direction of the company is going with, the, with regard to culture and people practices. And I have talked to a lot of these leaders who say, I get it. Like, I get what you're saying. I didn't have that. You know, I was telling Jack about a story of, um, I did a presentation on burnout. Burnout is a topic that I do a lot of work on. And I was doing a presentation on burnout and it was in this kind of um, interesting setting where I stood up in front of people eating lunch. And so I sat down after I was done and I sat next to this guy who was a COO of a, a healthcare, a big healthcare company. And he said, Laura, I, I, I get what you're saying intellectually. Like I understand the research and I sort of get it like emotionally <laughs> what you're saying but I never had any of this. I never had anybody who cared about me, who cared about like my future, cared about my input and voice, like you're describing. Uh, this, I don't know what you're really talking about. I've never experienced that. And so I think that's a huge kind of issue right now is there are a lot of leaders who know because of the great resignation, they know because of you know, the, the loud voices in their organizations, that they need to care about their employees in ways they never thought of before, but they don't really, in some cases, understand how to do that or understand what that looks like. Um, so I hear a lot of that, of more, hey, I, I get it, I need to do this, I know there's this war for talent thing, but I just, I don't know, quite know how to do it. So I'm with you, and it's, it's really interesting. And you know, part of me says, I was also talking to Jack about this. Like, I feel like I've been in kind of both worlds. You know, I've been in this world um, where you had to, there's a lot of more command and control kind of organizations where just come on, come to work, do your job. Um, and then now I've been also in this other world of like, wow, a lot more freedom, a lot more um, autonomy, a lot more of this belief that employees 
have a huge voice and I have a huge say in what happens in these organizations. And I, and I kind of like that world better in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> um, it's just that we're, I feel like in this place of sort of in between two worlds with the leaders kind of being from, from the first world, right? <laughs> and, and everybody else, you know, kind of coming and, and these two things coming together. So I, I think it's an awesome opportunity. It's a huge kind of pivot point. And I think what's happened with COVID and working from home, I mean, that is a perfect example, right, of these worlds coming, colliding and looking, look, look what's kind of won out is working from home is what is going to happen, right? It is more for most, for many jobs, not most, but many jobs. So it's interesting that you're I think it's fascinating. Yeah, go ahead. I love the fact that you're focusing on burnout because I, I had a a solution to burnout that I have put up the flagpole to a few CEOs and I, I wanted to roll it up with you to see what you think. Yeah. So the stats that we that we've been able to look at are about, you know, one in three people when they quit, they don't have another job lined up. Yeah. And of course, there's going to be, you know, 90 days later after you've watched the double feature of Jerry Springer, you're like, what did I do? And now I'm bored. And the employer probably has not replaced you uh, with a fully functioning you 2.0 90 days out. And I thought, well, we have maternity leave. What if we had burnout leave for the really important employees? Say 90 days, go do your thing. Let's revisit and just see see where we Mm -hmm. are. And I'm curious what you think of that. And then I'll tell you what the CEOs told me what they thought of it. You can guess. I'm sure you're right. But what do you think of it? Well, my first response is, uh, okay. you know, that's not going to work. And here's why, because th- there's a term that we use for that called runaway recovery. <laughs> it's like this idea that I'm going to run away from this and I'm going to feel so much like you put like all the emphasis on your vacation that you have planned, right? You have a vacation in six months. Everything's going to be better after I take that vacation, right? And it does help. Let's, let's be clear. Like, obviously it helps. But when you come back and the same issues are there that haven't been addressed, it's just going to start the process over again. And so I really feel strongly that burnout is an organizational problem, not a personal problem. And if you look at the research from Christine Maslow, she did research, her research is 20 years old now, but the causes of burnout have a lot to do with things like lack of role clarity, role ambiguity, not getting feedback from your manager, having um, a values misalignment between, you know, kind of what you value and what you see gets really valued in your organization, or having a break in the, breach in the psychological contract, right? Like trust breakdown, so, and not being included in decision-making. So she has this whole list that are really evidence-based drivers of burnout that are about organizational causes. It's not a personal problem. And the thing that's so tricky about burnout is the the way the natural phases play out is it looks really personal because there's this, especially, you know, the first phase of burnout is that exhaustion phase, which we can all relate to and feeling completely depleted. But that second phase of cynicism. So when you start to feel really like, I can't handle this, and we don't kind of emotionally detach, it starts to be kind of hard to be around toxic to be around, you know, saying bad things about your customers or your manager or the leaders as a way of kind of emotionally detaching, right? And so that's the, the phase that you say, gosh, this person has got issues and it's their Lauren, problem, right? Let me interject, yeah. but, but wouldn't that maybe be a good time, as Michael's pointing out, to, to actually just step away 
almost like a sabbatical. Yeah. Where, you know, one of the four, one of the Forbes editors, I can't remember what company it was, but they were offering that. You know how sometimes you got a, you'll get a sabbatical for writing a book or doing some yeah. research, what have you. Almost say, hey, you know, Tessa, you have it. You need, you know, you want it. Great. Make it a month. So because I know what you're saying and I, you, I see that all the time. You know, yeah. you can tell where people are so over it. They're crazy, they're irritable. They're, they're just kind of toxic. And I think they know yeah. themselves they're toxic, but they can't help themselves. And it's almost better to say, you know what? Just, just <laughs> you go on the sidelines for a, a while. Time out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Only, I, I, again, I do, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say the only problem with that, again, I, I used to look at this, this issue of burnout in healthcare is that so many people can't walk away for yeah. a given yeah. period of time, whether you have to provide for the family and you have an yeah. hourly wage job or you're a nurse or a doctor. Um, and right now we're in such an incredible labor shortage in healthcare um, because of COVID and because of burnout <laughs> um, yeah. is, is that you can't, you can't walk away. So then it's, what does the organization do to help support these people? And how can you even, because I think what you the symptoms you're describing is when it's almost too late, right? You yeah. almost lost them yeah. versus when they're starting to feel despondent and, you know, some more when they start to reach that cynicism phase, don't you feel like that's when it's you're too late? Yes, hundred percent. You're already burned out, right? I think the the early indicators of this before it gets to this point are when you start to feel like the stress isn't manageable anymore. You know, when you're starting to feel overwhelmed by the stress, that tipping point is the really important point. But again. The causes of stress, and this is this research study I'm working on right now with therapists um, and employees, those causes of stress that are sometimes unique to the, like to your point, Tessa, unique to the industry, unique to the company, what are we doing about those causes of stress to really stop the whole process or at least help the process, right? Stress is inevitable. We all have stress. Stress is actually really good in a lot of ways, right? But it's the point at which it becomes unmanageable. You know, what makes it tip over? And so that's what I really am interested in is how can we as organizations have better understanding of what those things are and what we can do about them? This is super enlightening because I've, I've always, I've had seven startups, so I've never been burned out because I've always liked being a workaholic. <laughs> and then uh, I retired and then I, I went to teaching, which I love. And I got burned out this semester because I'm teaching at two schools, but I didn't recognize it until, you know, there were like burn marks everywhere. <laughs> and then it's funny, I, I took a quiz on, I just Googled, you know, a quiz on burnout and I got an A and I'm like, oh my God, I'm <laughs> I'm doing this podcast. I should I should know better, but it's it's insidious, it's subtle, and I ran into a coworker yesterday where I thought I was looking into the mirror. Same thing, and we I love it how you're talking about it. it's the organization. I agree with you. I had signed up for two classes, and I was requested twist my arm, uh, double that to four. We really need you. You're amazing. We're short staffed. Do four, and I've never done four before. And I said okay. And that was the problem that leadership was giving me too much work and my, my quality dropped. And so it, you're right, it does start with the organization. But I'm curious, yeah. how, do we, how do we prevent it? You know more about it than we do, but since it is subtle and insidious and by the time we notice it, it's too late, what, what do we do to make sure that we don't run into this? 
there's so many layers of what you're asking, right? I think one of the biggest ones is how we just even talk about this topic within organizations, how people kind of normalize this idea of burnout, that it, it feels like from, you know, my career, it used to be talking about burnout was like, you know, nobody <laughs> shouldn't do that. That's, I, I've always worked in tech, you know, high tech kinds of companies. And so it, you couldn't bring it up. It was sort of a, a you know, sticky subject, but now it's much more of a topic that people are normalizing that we're having conversations about. So I think that's a good place to start is to be able to even know what it is to be able to see yourself in it. I think that's a big part of it. Having conversations with your manager, being able to have open conversations about, gosh, you know, I said yes to four classes, you know, next, next semester, you know, I just don't think I, I do my best work. I don't think I'm able to, to, to take that on again. You know, being able to feel like you could have that conversation with no negative consequences, right? Um, you probably could do that, no problem. But there are a lot of people who might not feel that kind of psychological safety. So I think having psychological safety in the organization to be able to feel like um, the, in, the company has your best interest in mind, that there's mutual trust. There's a lot about kind of the norms of uh, in the culture of the organization that I think can help these kinds of converse, honest conversations happen. Um, so, and how could a manager who's who loves this but just doesn't know what to do? How could a manager create and communicate psychological safety when they literally just heard the term today but want people to be able to come to them? and tell them what's really going on and not be afraid that there's gonna be bad things happening. Yeah, it takes a little time, right? It's not just in one conversation that that gets built, but it's this idea that I, I listen, I try to do something to help what I'm, the situation and what I'm hearing. So maybe I try to take action in some kind of way, but it's more, kind of more importantly is you start to feel like there are no negative consequences from me coming to this conversation and being honest, right? That this isn't gonna come back to bite you in any sort of way. So that takes time to kind of build that surety um, in that relationship. But it, it is really about a trusting relationship between the manager and the employee. And some people have that and gosh, it's, you know, you know how many people don't. It's, I mean, it's really sad. We did a research study last year on, on the employee experience. Um, and we had a couple open-ended questions. And one of the questions was, describe your, the worst experience you've had at work and also describe your best. And there were some beautiful things in the best, but still in the worst piece, I mean, it was heartbreaking. So many employees are still having, you know, being bullied by their manager, um, being, you know, racist remarks from their managers, um, really absolutely feeling like in times of crisis that they were left out, left hanging, uh, left out to dry, you know, like it, it just continues to be a really, a, a huge need for improving the employee experience. So I'm hopeful that some people, a lot of people still have some good managers and they can have these kinds of conversations, but it's, I think, true that a lot of people don't. And, and when people don't, and they've determined, okay, I've done the serenity prayer, I can't change this, <laughs> I can't change it. Um, when they do look for another place, are there any any guidelines or any advice that they should that they should come away with from this podcast today? That when they go into those interviews, to make sure they're not just going into a worse place, that they are going yeah. to place better. What should they? It's be so asking? hard, so hard with an interview, isn't it? I mean, it yeah. really is. 
some of the things I recommend to people is asking questions about the work they're doing internally around their culture. Like if, if, if there are some good answers that the manager can come back and say, oh, absolutely. When we talk about our culture all the time, we talk about how we can improve it. We talk about what matters to us in our organization. If you hear those kinds of answers, I, I'd say that's encouraging, right? Because there's some holding up of the mirror, some desire to improve. But if you hear a response of, huh? Like, I don't know what you're talking about. We've never done any of that work. We don't talk about culture here. That might be one sign, you know? Yeah, we're <laughs> um, like, hey, so, hey, we have a ping pong table. Right, exactly. <laughs> oh, darn, ping pong tables, margarita Fridays. You know, I I always tease that those those things, it, they're in retrospect, we kind of laugh now, don't we? But I mean, I remember being in the midst of that where it was all about the juice bar, you know, all about the juice bar. And now it just, without people being at a physical location, it's almost, it's laughable, isn't it? And in a fairly short period of time, how much that, that idea of what culture is has changed. So Laura, with, uh, with LimeAge, you had kind of a platform that people could take a self-assessment, right? In terms of how they're doing. Yeah. Um, for let's say burnout, could companies have something, some sort of software app where you could deploy that to see yeah. Hey, am I reaching, you know, like that needle that goes to red, like, uh-oh, yeah. no emergency, where on a regular basis they could do that and maybe even have like micro feedback surveys to see how they're doing it so that it could decentralize to team leaders to find out like within their particular group how they're doing without being too invasive, but to yeah. really find out how they're feeling and catch it before it gets really bad. Yeah, that's exactly what we did at Limeade. Um, That's what I created. So the kind of first part of what I contributed to LimeAid in 2006, like so many years now, was the development of a whole person well-being assessment. I think it's like 3 million people or so have taken this well-being assessment now. Wow. And one of the pieces of this well-being assessment is um, engagement, kind of your level of personal engagement at work and stress. And so basically what we did is we did some research to show that that intersection of when you're highly engaged for long periods of time, but you're starting to feel like the stress is unmanageable, what I was saying before, that tipping point of unmanageable stress, that that's an early indicator um, that you might be on the path to burnout. So what we would do is when people would kind of fall into that, that Venn diagram, high engagement, um, unmanageable stress, we would send to them some things that they can do, like just teaching them what burnout is, some things that they can do to try to address it. There's both the kind of in the moment, you know, how you think about managing stress and calming, but also kind of the bigger idea of getting to some of these root causes. And then on top of it, to your point, Jack, is how we can help managers see what the risk of burnout is in their organization. We would never out them, right? Because we want the results to be confidential. So we wouldn't say, oh, watch out, Jack is, you know, Jack is about to burn out. But we would say, you know, your percentage or, of risk of burnout is higher than that of the whole company. There, there's some things you should probably pay attention to. So absolutely, I think technology could really be our friend in this, in this kind of a scenario that allows people to have some confidentiality, but still really learn about this topic. It, it doesn't sound, it sounds, I don't know, maybe if you're kind of simplifying for us, but it sounds like a really straightforward way of doing it. I mean, it doesn't seem, right? I mean, it seems like very intuitive and you get a good response right away. 
Yeah, it's our, our customers, I think, have been very grateful for it because they can see where the pockets are too, right? You can see it for the whole, for a big organization, you can see where the hotspots are and see what, gosh, I'm really worried about the IT function and what's going on from a burnout perspective. You know, we've been doing this for years before the pandemic happened. Burnout's been around for a long time, yeah. right? It's our understanding has, I think, evolved and been maybe um, had to go fast track with with the global pandemic of really talking about burnout and understanding burnout, but it's been around for a long time. And I think there, there's such an opportunity for organizations to understand it and understand their role. And again, I keep going back to, I want organizations to work on the stuff that's upstream from burnout, right? I want them to get to those root causes. I want, I really think that's, that's the important piece here. I could see a real service being provided by a, a third party product not in-house, but third-party anonymous that, okay, I get a weekly ding. Hey, you know, fill out the form. If I'm, you know, if I'm just living in, you know, butterflies and roses territory, I'm, I'm just going to delete it, which is fine. Uh, but if I'm, if I'm like cranky, I'll fill it out. And that's yeah. kind of who you want. Like, yeah, I, I want to fill this thing out. And then maybe I could start getting little things of, Hey, when's the last time you went to yoga? Oh, well, I had the membership. <laughs> I got the mat. <laughs> yeah. I think that, I think that's a great idea for like an early indicator just to kind of check in with people. Hey, like Jack is saying, like, you know, that the needle's getting a little close. Maybe you need to do something. Right. I think that that's, I mean, what we've seen, my, my opinion around what we've seen around the great resignation is so many people who have been through this, right. Who like basically sacrificed, feeling like they've sacrificed everything. I've given everything to this job. I've given myself, I've given my family time, I've given my physical health to this place. And oh my gosh, why did I do that? <laughs> you know, why did I sacrifice everything? I really can see clearly through this huge global pandemic that my priorities need to shift, right? There are other things that are more important than me doing this thing um, at this job. And so I, I don't know, I just think burnout is, and again, not thinking about it like it's this little thing that only affects a couple people over here that have, can't handle it, <laughs> but I, that, that's the thing that I really think we need to move away from and think about it more as it's really something that's more of an organization-wide issue and people are in kind of different phases and we need to like think differently about how we think about things like stress. Even I would argue, we need to think differently about the topic of employee engagement. I am like an employee engagement person. I've probably developed hundreds of custom engagement surveys. A lot of the two of the big tech companies in this area, I created their employee engagement survey. So I am all about a good employee engagement survey. And I'm all about, I love that feeling of engagement, right? I love that feeling of being really connected to my work and getting excited about it and thinking about it all the time. But the more that I've studied it and the more I think about it, I really think we need to change this model. We need to stop talking about having, you know, what percentage of our employee population is, you know, highly engaged that like we want everybody to be all in 100% of the time. I think we need to change those models and we need to start thinking differently about the ups and downs of work and about being a human. It shouldn't be all in all the time. 
So that that um, brings brings me to a point that I wanted to ask you about because part of what we've seen with um, COVID is what's called the she session, right? So women were um, you know, disproportionately affected by COVID and having to either uh, step down from their jobs because they had to take care and homeschool their kids and. And obviously, and looking at who is the one to continue to work between two partners, um, a woman and a man, oftentimes, because men on average make more money than women, the men, the men kept working and the women stayed home and, and homeschooled their children. So we saw a loss of employment with women, but then also, also, you know, going back, women who did continue to work or who want to return to the workforce, a real stress around childcare and the uncertainty of the pandemic and the uncertainty of homeschooling. And so I, I love what you just said around, we have to kind of change the paradigm that it's not all or nothing as far as employee engagement, but what role do you think companies need to play in being able to provide those resources like on-site daycare? And you know, the, we're seeing this huge debate about work from home and um, you know, certain companies demanding that everyone returns back to work. And for a lot of women, that's just not, going to be a sustainable solution because they need to have the flexibility to work from home if their kids all of a sudden are quarantined for two weeks um, because they had a COVID exposure. So what role do you think companies, do you think companies are thinking about employee engagement that way and providing that level, those level of benefits and services, or are they still thinking about doing the summer cookout? <laughs> yeah, I do think, I do think lots of organizations are thinking about those kinds of things. I can, I can't even, I have two older kids. I have a 17-year-old and a 21-year-old. I can't even imagine what this COVID thing would have been like if I had little kids. I, I mean, it breaks my heart around how hard that must have been and probably still is. And so I'm with you that there's so much more. I I, I think there's a lot of benefits that can be offered, like on-site on-site childcare that would be awesome, but I think it's also a lot more about what happens in the day-to-day -day around flexibility and autonomy and freedom of my day and how I design my day, that I think that's a really important part that needs to happen. Um, and I do see a lot of organizations, but I tend to work with you know tech, more tech companies that have more of the resources to be able to do that. So that's what I always argue is any company can work on their culture. You know, not every company can offer on-site childcare. So work on the culture, work on this idea that people can be included, even if they are having some issues and that they feel like they can have that trust and freedom to make those decisions for their day when something happens or when they need to be paying attention more um, to their work. So I think there's a there's a really important piece there. Now, I wanted, I thought you were going to bring up um, another part, Tessa, around emotional burden. I think this is a really important piece. I was reading an article about this recently around women in leadership roles who play the role of the emotional burden of the organization, right? The things that are, and, and through this whole pandemic, through all the things that have happened over the last couple of years, there's a lot of emotional burden. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about women playing the, carrying the emotional burden of the household many times and the emotional burden of work, those things two together um, for people who have choices and not everybody has choice to your point, right? But for people who have choices, it's like, oh my God, I'm not doing this anymore, right? I'm not I can't handle the emotional burden everywhere I go. I'm not really, I was not, I'm not familiar with that term. So what exactly? Oh, yeah. 
What, so the know? idea is um, with the emotional burdens, there's this, this concept of emotional burden at home. And so let's, let's start with that part. The emotional burden at home is, you know, it's one thing to be the person who does pick up and drop off for your kids, let's say. Um, but it's another thing to say, oh my gosh, I know there's two birthday parties that are coming up next week. And I know I need to make sure there's a nice little card that my daughter writes out because that's what she always does. And I need to make sure that we said thank you from the party we were at last time. And like all the stuff that's all the way around a family, right? And things that need to happen, not just the transactional things, more of the kind of transformational things, the human part of having a family. <laughs> so women tend to bear the burden of that, right? They're thinking about all the relationships and the dynamics and all the things that need to go down as a family. So women tend to carry that emotional burden. There's some research that shows that, 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 that tends to happen. Well, that also happens at work. And, uh, you know, I might say, unfortunately, because it's a lot of a burden to bear, is that women tend to also be thinking in that kind of same way. Like, how do I think about um, making sure we, you know, express gratitude to this person on this team for their great contribution? And how do I make sure that we close that gap? I noticed that a person at a company meeting did, was really upset about something. How do I make sure that that manager talks to that employee and make sure that gets covered? You know, a lot of the the dyna interpersonal dynamics tend to be owned by women in organizations, sometimes because of roles, like maybe the chief people officer, things like that. But also just it, it sort of kind of has, is something that kind of happens over time. And so if you have, to Tessa's point, like not only just the actual tasks and work, but then you have the emotional burden in both, you know, home and work, that's a lot. And I would argue that is one of the contributors to um, why women aren't, you know, aren't always going back to work or dropping out of being in leadership roles specifically. That makes so much sense. And then if you throw on, if you put into the mix, two young children, oh. first graders, second graders, third graders, on top of that, I, it's, I, I can't even comprehend how you could get anything done. Completely, completely. You know, and those, those areas, so we've kind of talked about them, but the two areas that I feel like there's just a really important part of the evolution of organizations is stress and how we think about stress and how we think about kind of causes stress. But I think emotions too, and how the role emotions play at work. I think on one hand, we say, oh, it's all about EQ. We want to have leaders who are really emotionally intelligent. But then we say things like, okay, leave your emotions at the door. This is not a part of, you know, uh, no, no drama. <laughs> you know, I don't want to have this kind of discussion that involves emotions. It's just the facts. And I think we're, we're, we don't have a lot of sophistication and nuance around the role that emotions should and could play in organizations. And I think both stress and emotions are really about this humanization of work. And, and when I you know, dig into them, it's like, oh, we got a lot of work to do on how we, we come to understand stress and how we come to understand emotions and how we really embrace those in a way that are healthy for the organization and for people, right? I think you make a great point, and I, I just want to be mindful of, of the time, so I'll, I'll just give, I'll wrap us up with our last question. Um, women are so important in the workplace. I think they're amazing leaders. I think they bring an emotional intelligence that we've needed for years, and it's unfortunate that they're having to drop out, you know, because of all these situations, 
Uh, what do you suggest to employers who are like, yeah, I wanna, I wanna try to help this. What, what are some things that they could do, actionable things that would be like reasonable and have some choices? What would you suggest they consider? It's, you know, it's not different from the things we've been talking about. I think it's a lot about the culture, right? It's a lot about what really happens. Not about the culture on our website or on our wall. It's about what really goes down, right? It's how decisions get made, how people are included or not included in meetings or in big, you know, in big projects. There's a lot of that happens in the day-to-day, you know, behind, I used to say behind closed conference room doors, but behind <laughs> Zoom doors, um, you know, that really, that really send a message to people whether or not they're, they're valued. And what, in some of the research that we've done, what we found is that the emotion that matters the most to having a great positive employee experience is feeling recognized and valued, right? You really, you know, send the message to me that you're, that you value me. So I would argue that culture is always the place to start. And then how do you create people practices around that? How do you think about things like development opportunities? How do you think about things um, like succession plans, you know, that are really aligned with being more um, kind of thoughtful and inclusive of your employees, male, female, you know, everybody, right? And I think it benefits, it really benefits everybody. So, um, there's just a lot of work to do around that being really intentional about our culture. So interesting because as you're talking, I'm thinking about it's so many other paths also that you go down with the remote and hybrid workforce. And, and I agree with you, you said at the beginning of the show, that seems that's going to be the new norm, especially with this, in my opinion, with the new Omicron thing, Omicron, <gasps> Omicron, whatever the heck. Omicron, you're right. <laughs> whatever. It's, I think it's going to be a nail in the coffin to tell people to go back to the office full time because they say, that's nuts. Why would I do that? Given that there's another variant and I got to worry about the original COVID, the Delta, right. now Omicron. So what I hear from a lot of people in the workplace is that if you're home, you kind of become a second-class citizen sometimes. You get forgotten because you have the, maybe you'll have a video where you pipe into people who are in the office and people at home the people at home mm -hmm. a little tiny dot, you know, and the people there, and then you can mute. It's and it just so there's so many ways, in addition to what you talked about, that I see that companies are gonna have to deal with all these issues, all these problems, how they can isolate people, make them feel left out, make them feel um, that they're not appreciated or valued. So it's, yeah. I think instead of getting better in a way with remote work, which is I'm I'm all for it it's going to bring up a whole set of other reasons. If leadership isn't trained the right way at how to manage it, it could just make disasters down the road. Completely. And things that are going to keep dragging on yeah. or whole new challenges that we are going to have, right? So, and that's why I think it's so important to keep focusing on just the fundamentals, the fundamentals of culture um, and how we just keep working on treating people like human beings. And, you know, it is it does feel like kind of foreboding. There's so much still with COVID that's happening. But when I look back in, in, my, in my career, in my generation, there's been a huge amount of progress, right? There's been a huge amount. I, I used to work for a place where I saw leaders throw chairs, you know, on a regular basis. Um, so that just doesn't happen anymore, at least at places that, I'm, that I know of. It's just it, things have really, to me, gotten better. They, it has become more human. It's just we still have lots of work to do. Did you find with, let's say, with Limeade and 
that when you went to corporate customers, or they weren't customers yet, did they buy into it? Were, you know, did you get pushback? Did employees get a little leery, like, hey, if I fill this out, is someone going to see it and maybe I'm going to be labeled? Well, when we first started the company 15 years ago, there was there was pushback, right? There yeah. was a lot more, and especially even just people we were trying to sell to who would say things like, you know, what does stress have to do with physical health? <laughs> we had people who would, you know, say that, even though yeah. there was good research and literature. Now we completely know stress and physical health are related to each other. So it's been an evolution, um, but... I think also the people who are drawn to come and even work with us at Limeade already are probably a certain set of companies, right? Um, but for sure, there there is worry and concern about things like confidentiality that, that are all addressable concerns. And I think the biggest thing is when they see their organizations actually making some change, making things better, then they, they buy in, right, to doing things like assessments and participating in these different aspects of these um, kind of engagement and well-being initiatives when they see things get better. Yeah, this, you know, I could, you know, we could have you back if you want on a, so I'm looking to get this guy, Steve Pemberton, who's the chief people officer of human, uh, human work. Work human? Uh, work human, all right, <laughs> I just spoke from, I should know that, okay. Yeah, where they do kind of what you're talking about, where if let's say, um, you know, Tessa does something really great. You know, hey, Tessa, that was great. You did this project, that's fantastic, that's awesome but then it'll go up on social media internally. And then, you know, by giving the compliment, she might get, you know, a certain reward, a financial reward for doing it, which is kind of a unique, and I think you were kind of talking to that theme. And it seems like a really interesting concept. I haven't heard it before. I mean, are you familiar with that? Have you? Yeah, yeah. There's a, quite a few companies who do things like that, where you get more kind of systematic about things like recognition, right? Like systematically have a process, an easy way for people to give recognition to other people. And I think that's great, right? To have things like that in especially big companies where you got to be scaling. And so that's wonderful. But I also, I'm a big software person, but I also would argue you always still need kind of the human in, included in that conversation, right? Having a authentic thank you from your manager would go really far too. That's awesome. That's great. Wow. I, uh, this, is, this is a very valuable conversation. I love it. I, love it. I can keep talking. I so maybe, you know, this research study that we're doing right now, maybe I can share it back with you all too. I Absolutely. That'd be great. There's already been some really interesting conversations with therapists that I've had. So definitely Excellent. love to see it. That's great. Well, thank yeah. you so much, Laura. I, awesome. You know, this is fantastic. It's, it's, you know, there's so much great insight and advice and then so glad you're able to share it with us. Thank oh, you so much. Thank you all so much. So great Fine. talking with you. And this is really cool. This podcast Excellent. that you're doing. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. For awesome. Me. Take care. Okay. Thanks, Bye. 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 See you in a few months. Bye. All right. Take care. Bye.